Available on all podcast platforms. This is the Psychology Cast, the podcast that interviews unique individuals on why they do what they do. This podcast, I talked to Dr. Ravi Gill on how she is using psychology in the police force. Um, she is a health psychologist, so it's a bit very similar to uh, what I'm training to become. You know, I've done a lot of work around um, using health psychology in different places, but I've never looked at it from a working in the, um, the police force. So um, talking to uh, Dr. Gill, she provides a lot of insight and a lot of valuable information about how um, it can be utilised, the world of psychology, to help um, uh, staff in the, um, the police force. So um, I hope you find it useful and valuable. And if you think that anyone might be interested in listening to this podcast, then please share and please enjoy this podcast. No. Okay. So good evening, I should say, to Dr. Gill. Um, how are you? How are you? Yes, good. Thank you. Yourself? Had a very busy day. Yes. Um, how has it like been working from home for you? Um, working from home, I've actually found it be, to be really quite easy to adapt to. Um, I've managed to set up a little sort of home office area um, and it, that really helps for me just in terms of creating a balance between work and home. So, you know, this is my working environment and I pretty much spend the majority of my time here. But then when I leave this room, it's a case of the rest of the house and then family life sort of starts. So it, yeah. it helps me to create that barrier and that sort of detachment from both, I suppose. I thought it'd be good, very good to um, interesting to talk to you because I thought, you know, I come across your profile. Um, there's two elements. So one is around how you got into um, psychology um, and health psychology. And then the second part of the interview, I'm going to ask you about questions around how do you apply it in, every, in everyday work? Okay. Because, you know, that's something that I'm doing in that sense. I'm like, I finished almost my training. I'm almost there. I wonder what other people are doing. How did they apply it? What was their journey like? And um, some of the people that may be listening in, mm-hmm. I signpost them into, okay, look at this individual. They've, they've taken this path into their career okay. that way. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have to follow me. Everyone's got their own journey. So um, I should say, yeah, so, you know, first of all, thank you for agreeing to do this. No problem. That's absolutely <laughs> fine. <laughs> Especially at a busy time. I can imagine what it is, yeah. It, it, um, it, this provides a little bit of a break from everything else that's going on, so it's quite nice to do something a little bit different. Yeah, I, um, um, some of the other guys have said the same thing. Like, yeah. It's because sometimes your mind can get stuck into this cycle of intense, you know, overload, isn't it, in that sense? Yeah. Um, and where at the moment everything is COVID-19 related, it's oh. quite nice to take a little bit of a step back and just do something something else. Yeah, a break from the, a break from the cycle. Yes, that's it. Um, so my first question is around, just in general, in psychology, right? How how did you come into psychology? Do you know, now when I think about coming into it, you're talking about younger age at school. Um, was it at college? Was it something more younger? I mean, you were, I mean what got you into, into human behaviour? Um, so specifically, I think I had a completely different career path in mind. Um, when I initially was thinking about, oh, what do I want to do? Um, I was still at school. And I actually wanted to become an air hostess and travel oh. the world. <laughs> so completely different from the psychology path that I've taken. Um, How interesting. 
I know. And what actually happened was my dad sort of sat me down and said, that's not a real job. Um, you kind of need to think about something a little bit more serious. Try and think about something that in years to come, when you have a family, that's something that's going to give you a little bit of flexibility, but something that you can dip in and out of so that you've always got um, a variety of different skills. So you're not just doing the same job over and over, but something that provides you with um, uh, just like different options to do within within work. And how, um, how, how, and how old were you then, like for that oh, conversation? So probably about 15, 16. Okay. So yeah. Probably, yeah. And uh, what would happen is that every single year on my birthday, my dad would sit me down and say, right, what's your five-year plan? And that's what really got me thinking in terms of what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and then obviously being at school age, we were exploring GCSE options, mm. what kind of career path. And I picked, obviously made some of the main sciences and exploring a little bit more about what I could potentially go into. Um, and the word psychology popped up. And then as I was reading a little bit more into it, I thought, you know what, this is something that I can get quite into nicely because there's so much to explore and you can almost get lost within that, that I found mm -hmm. it quite exciting. Um, so I pursued, um, obviously my A-levels, completed those from college. And then from then on, um, I got exploring into more detail in terms of where this could potentially take me. So completed the A-levels and then I went into um, a bachelor's degree um, in psychology. Um, so that was a three-year course that I completed. Um, did was, there any, was there any specific um, like um, areas in A-level psychology that you enjoyed? So I really enjoyed the cognitive models, uh, that particular part of it. The social psychology elements in terms of uh, social conformity, social experiments, um, and just around really understanding why people behave that they do. So obviously the social experiments are key indicators of that. And that really kind of led me in and thinking, well, what is it about this thing? You know, just because a guy turns up in a white jacket, all of a sudden we respond to authority in a certain way. What does this mean? Um, so initially it was around so social elements, but I've always had a key interest in health um, anyway. So whilst I was at college, I was actually working in a pharmacy uh, just as a pharmacy assistant and I was providing sort of generic health and well-being advice around sort of smoking cessation, diabetes management, healthy eating. So I had an interest from that perspective. Um, and then I suddenly thought, well, how can I link the two? Uh, because I've got a passion for psychology, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a passion for sort of health-related tasks. How can I sort of marry the two together or make it something that's like really interesting for me? And then the word health psychology popped up. Mm. And I thought, okay, um, and during this time, I was still studying for my bachelor's and there was a health psychology module, which I absolutely loved. And I just really, really got involved with it. Um, and I thought, you know what, this is a potential career path. Like I can actually see myself doing something related to this because it combines, like I said, both the elements um, of things I'm really interested in and passionate about. So I then, after completing my bachelor's, I went on to do a master's uh, specifically in health psychology, because I thought to myself at this point, the BPS accredited stage one, stage two seemed to be the most, um, the, the option that I was going to go for. It seemed to be the most, um, the most suitable one for me. So I completed the stage one um, accredited MSc, um, completed that, wrote my thesis on. You know, um, you know before, you know, before like, uh, no, that's really useful. I was just going to say like, um, just before you done the masters, what was going through your head to do the master? Because I think a lot of people, yeah. you know start thinking about hmm, which direction do I go 
yeah what 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 what, what do you think what was the one of the final one of the key things that made you think right no i'm gonna go with this direction so i definitely saw my bachelor's as the foundation for the start of my career and i thought you know if this is the basic foundational knowledge that i have how can i build upon that yeah. and how can i take it to somewhere and almost mold it to something that i want to do and how can I make it my own? Um, so that's how I really viewed it. And obviously starting the master's was just the first part for me. So that um, really, really sort of, like I just threw myself into it, I suppose. Mm. Um, and then when I was in the master's, because I was able to, like I said, combine and learn more about the elements of health and all the different modules that were involved, that for me sort of set the idea of, yes, I can actually see myself doing this and this is what I want to do. And it almost just kind of motivated me a little bit more to go on and complete my stage two. Um, so after I completed my master's, I actually completed my first master's in psychology, health and behavior. So oh, it still really? had, yeah, okay, cool. so it had the psychology element, but it had the health and behavior because I was still really quite interested in that part. So that one at the time wasn't accredited by the BPS. Um, but I still very much wanted to pursue that stage too. So I think I did that particular one at the time to say, well, do I actually want to do this? And is this something that I can see myself doing in the future? So it almost like a test run. Hmm. Um, and I thought where it's a year, I can, I, I'm still gained enough in terms of clinical skills, the academic skills in order to be able to do other roles, but just to provide me with a little bit more information before I make that informed decision about where I want to take my career. I think that, you know, I, no, that's, it certainly sounds like it's been a journey. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a long time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but is the, I mean, I, I've, I've started in 20, 2006. Yeah. When I first started my foundation and, yeah. and I've just, I'm just waiting for Viva, as most people okay. know. Yeah. And um, so mentally, how, I mean, for me, I can, I mean, I'll show you my experience, mentally it's been, it's been intense yeah. because I'm almost there. It's like, why do I have to go the long way around? And why does it always feel so, you know, and it does feel frustrating, but I don't know how you found it. Mm. Um, and how did you cope? Like, how did you manage that? So if you, I don't know if you've got those same feelings, but. So I think for me, the point it really struck um, was when I was doing my second master's. So I completed the psychology, health and behavior one, and that made me more adamant to complete the, yeah, yeah. you know, the BPS route. So then I went back into university and I actually did the stage one, which is the BPS accredited health psychology masters. Um, and because we had the element of completing the work placement, that for me really provided a sense of having to juggle university as well as juggling a placement. And I was still working at the time. So juggling all of that really sort of helped me and shaped me, I think in a massive way, but it also prepared me for the stage two. Um, but I don't really think I fully appreciated the effort and the hard work it would take to do the stage two at that point. I don't think I really <laughs> yeah. got to that point until I was sitting there <laughs> writing my thesis and doing my reflection pieces. Even at that point, my supervisor's like, you need to be more reflective. You need to talk about this. And I just, I was completely blind to it because I just said, but this is something that I have to do. And I just continued with that motto, but not actually taking into account the impact that it had and how tough it really was. Because if I actually did nine years from starting my bachelor's to completing my thesis, it was a full nine years um, with no break in between and still working part time 
and then towards um, and obviously the stage two I had to work full-time as part of the competency requirements so work doing all of that and still maintaining you know all of these other little placements and things as well to help build it up I don't think I fully appreciated it um, and it wasn't until after I'd completed my thesis and handed it all in completed my viva that after four years I think I'd actually given myself Christmas off and I sat there during the Christmas holidays and I thought what do I do what do I actually yeah. do like this is the first time in a long time I haven't had to do any coursework I haven't had to write a dissertation I haven't got to do a project I've actually got nothing to do and I just suddenly sat there and thought wow I can't believe I've literally been on autopilot for so long and just almost sailing through no it's, it's really impressive stuff I mean hard work <laughs> I, I, see, I don't I don't know what what do you what do you, what do you think what kept you going what kept you motivated I think I was just so motivated like I said I told myself something silly that I was going to complete my doctorate before I hit 30 and I'd almost set myself that time scale. So I completed it by 27 and thought, yeah, I've got three years to spare, but I was just on this mission to prove something to myself that I have to do this. I have to do this. Um, but it was not only just to say that I could do it, but also personally for me to say that I've achieved something of that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Also, also really, really important to take an education up to a higher level. Um, than most of my peers actually as well. Yeah, and I say, you know, really, really well done because I know the the amount of effort. Yeah. Just to cross, just to even get up that mountain, it's just, yeah. you know, you, your, your mind just feels like it's going to shut down at any yeah. point and just keep well, going. You're, you're probably like right in that moment now yeah. because you're just waiting for the next stage yeah. of, you know, I've done all of this work, what does this mean? And you're still hanging on to the end, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's why I think by talking to people like yourself and it kind of helps me unlock some stuff for me. Mm. And, um, you know, mentally it's good for me as well because I'm like, actually... You can people. get through this. There is a light yeah. at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, and I can see it, you know, and that's yeah. literally the video. But yeah, this is what I mean. This is why I try to talk to other people who've done uh, similar journeys yeah. and um, to know that actually what you're going through is nothing it's, it's not uncommon at yeah. all yeah. yeah like i said i was not even aware of half of the things that i was putting myself through like not sleeping properly not eating properly all of the things that as a health psychologist i should be mindful of i yeah. wasn't actually putting into practice but it isn't until later when all of that's over that you actually sit there and think wow i can't believe i did that and i did want to ask like a specific question around um i've always been interested in this type of question to people you know it's like as you as you're developing right through the whole doctorate process your mind is um say expanding yeah. um yeah. so you're expanding through the whole doctorate journey your mind's expanding mm -hmm. um do you tend i mean i i found basically that i seem to be critiquing everything maybe because i'm a heightened awareness okay i'm almost like sometimes i have to back off like mm -hmm. I realized actually that was a bit too, too much. I'm like, I need yeah. to chill out because, you know, this is not how it was a few years ago. Let's be yeah. a lot more. But because I'm at this, my brain is in that stage that you're able what to. What we call the toxic stress state. Is that what it is? Yeah. 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 It's, it's very, it's a very common. Common trauma presentation.
So we just and with the everything. Simulation is going to come from, and it just keeps you in that place. But that's also what you motivate. Oh yeah, just disconnected, yeah. but yeah, there you go. Okay. Um, it's still recording. That's fine. <laughs> that's <all right. laughs> no problem. There'll just be a pause. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yes. So what was that? Um, the one that I cut you off at was um, toxic stress state. Okay. And um, I suppose that is what is that most what most people go through. Do you think? Um, I think it is something that you go through. It's quite commonly associated with a trauma. So um, through my working experience more recently within trauma, I found that a lot of people do, do present with that so that you naturally just almost um, are always hyper aroused, hyper vigilant mm -hmm. to the things mm -hmm. around you. Um, and you just take things in in a little bit more of a sensitive way, but also in terms of your emotional responses as well, they'll be at a heightened level. Um, so it, it has issues in terms of emotional regularity because of the way that your brain perceives the information. So that's probably yeah. where you find yourself, but you find that once that vibe is over, you'll just have this new sense of freedom of, I can't believe that I've done it. Yeah, I, I, I think um, I'll be in that, you know, elated state, I hope. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it looks like it's going to like happen online. So praying yeah. for a good Wi-Fi connection. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's why it's come down to you know, the day because It's a learning I, experience anyway. I remember being, I felt really intimidated going, in, going into my Viber. It was quite... Um, a traumatic experience actually and I almost had to blank that day out because I was like I never want to think about it again um, but obviously glad that it was over and then I could just close that chapter and now move on. I think that's what it is I felt I told my supervisor look I want I need to close this chapter look you know yeah. you've had me for 14 years. Four now. years 14 years wow yeah I mean if you <laughs> yeah if you know if you include the whole um, undergrad and yeah. masters okay. and the PhD PhD has been about eight years now okay and um, you know, I need to move on. You know, yeah, I need um, to. Yeah, I need to put this to bed now and kind of move on with what's next. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so um, I think um, people who might be interested in um, coming and doing a PhD or doing a doctorate or doing a stage two, what would be your kind of advice to them? Because at the moment they'll be contemplating. I reckon that at home yeah. contemplating. They're probably just about to finish the undergrads. Yeah, thinking yeah, about thinking masters. What, actually, what do I want to do? Yeah, um, I'd say actually be prepared to give up your social life. I think for the four years that I was involved in my doctorate, um, I sacrificed a lot of personal relationships as a result, just because my time and dedication yeah. was to this journey that I had embarked on. And I thought if I don't give it my all now, there's no point me even trying to continue because I have to give it my all to make this as successful as I can. Um, and again, just the time and ded dedication that you want to put into it but also make sure that you have um, the elements of social support around you because as much as it's you going through this journey, you need the, the, the support of like family and friends around you who actually say, you know, even if it's just a case of you've been studying all weekend, let's just go out, grab a coffee and then come back. Um, so just to have people like that around can be really, really helpful just to take that little bit of a break off um, and edge off some of the seriousness and intensity of, of what's involved. And obviously with the stage two, because you might have to work full time as well, it's, you have to find that balancing act of what is work, what is play, and, and how do yeah. I fit in a doctorate or a stage two or a yeah. PhD in between. Yeah, I, I think that's invaluable advice. I think you're right, absolutely. Looking after your, your, your well-being yeah. 
and through good social support, healthy social support. Because I think, you know, I mean, some of my, most of my friends have been really supportive. One or two don't understand it and it's been stressful. Yeah, see, it is, it's that element where people don't understand it. You think, well, how can I even possibly explain to you? You should just be able to get it. And, yeah, and, yeah. and that's the difficulty because <laughs> you think, I haven't even got time to explain to you what this means to me, but I just know that I need to continue. And if you're not going to be here, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't wait for you to kind of make up your mind. I have to do yeah. what's right for me. And that, and that can be a difficult difficult decision i feel yeah i feel i think that's that's been a very very big challenge yeah. in terms of like coming through the whole journey it's like okay look i've got i've got to go you know yeah. it's like the marathon isn't it? I, yeah. I run the london marathon last year wow just, just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. doing the phds um <laughs> my, my supervisor thought you've got nothing else better to do each time i got nobody kept me fit kept my yeah. mind fit see now i used to swim yeah. what i used to focus on when i was really in the thick of writing my thesis and I needed a break, I would go swimming. And the only thing I would think about is going from one end of the pool to the other and then making it back again. Because if that was all my brain could focus its attention on, that's great because I knew back home, I'd have a thousand other things to think about. So I think there's, there's an opportunity, right? I reckon there's an opportunity for people in health psychology to design a program to look after the well-being of um, doctorate and PhD yeah. students because it's stacking. Yeah, it's lacking. It's it's it almost like because when you started off, I don't know when you started off. Um, so you, if I I graduated with my thesis for five years ago now, yeah. And when you started the first day, I mean, I don't know if you were like me. I I didn't know what I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to. I fell into my stage two accidentally. I have to say. Um, so what had happened was that I'd completed my masters. And my supervisor had called me in um, and at the time the stage two had just been approved at that university so the BPS had marked it as an accredited course um, and she'd called me in and she said oh I just wanted to talk to you about the research project that you did if you had an opportunity to develop it further how would you do so and just really trying to find ideas from mm -hmm. that perspective mm -hmm. um, me being completely oblivious to what had happened let, uh, next thing you know I have a letter come through saying you know you've been accepted into the stage two qualification wow. and at that time I was still umming and ahhing of do I even want to do this where I'd spent now five years doing you know a bachelor's and two masters was I really now committed to doing another three four years it's almost as if that decision was taken out of my hands and I remember just receiving the letter and I thought to myself if I don't do this now I never will um, and I think that really helped um, in order for me to take it forward because I just thought yeah if 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 someone else has decided that I'm okay to do this I'll just take it and make what make it work however yeah I mean I suppose um you know it's like one of those things when you want to hit your goal um you will you will do what, what what's necessary yeah. what it takes isn't it, to get you to that goal that's right yeah um and I think a lot of the students right now because I think they're coming up to me I mean it's funny you know in the university yes I'm the, I'm the oldest PhD student or the oldest student because I've been for such a long time. So <laughs> the, the, the first years in PhD level, um, even doctorate students are coming up to me for, um, they get signposted. Yeah. You know, and, um, and I remember my relationships with tutors and Change. advisors have changed. Yeah, my supervisor is very cool, but it's everybody else, like in the uh, research school, for example. Um, at first, I was used to be very intimidated by them, but now it's very different. I now it's like, almost like peer-to-peer -peer. yes yeah you know and it, it's weird because you don't know when that transition happens no isn't it 
yeah it's almost as if that one day you walk in and you're just taken seriously as a PhD student yeah. or a stage yeah. two student rather than just being an undergrad or an MSc it's quite strange how that happens yes yeah because um I just I just I, yes yeah, it's, it's weird because I think maybe when the first the new students come in and sometimes they see me in meetings and uh and I can do some rebuttal with the head of departments and say no no this is not going to work or this is more effective three four years ago i would never have said that <laughs> and and i'm thinking are they listening to me they seem to be listening they said oh yeah that's a very good point like, okay seems and it's something like they're taking me seriously now as well like you've got value in terms of what you're yeah. saying not that it discredits anything no, no. you've before but because of the standing of where you now are within the university it has yeah. a different aspect and i suppose you're you're you're, you're basically you you're applying the skills that they've taught you isn't it? So it's a reflection on them. Yeah. Doesn't that's it? Right. Yeah. Um, is it a reflection of their teaching and what they've put into you? Yeah. So yeah, which brings me on to like um, my second part of the interview, which is around um, about application. Because I've basically been a big, big um, fan of you know, how when I go into psychology, I've always asked myself like, what does it mean? Yeah. How can we use it? how do we apply it like you know literally even to my uh, nephews and nieces when i'm asking them certain things yeah. they're doing like they're having fun or something i'll always ask them i go what does it mean like, yeah but what does this mean to you why have yes you it? what significance <laughs> does it hold yeah yeah and they, they look at me, yeah they look at me as if like you know what kind of questions is that so you know i've always been interested in that okay how do we how do we how do we use that and apply it here yeah so um um, tell us a bit more about your um, work that you're doing at the moment. Okay, so at the moment I'm currently working as a psychologist um, for the Metropolitan Police. So I'm currently based in their occupational health department, uh, which means that we see a lot. So I'm attached to the counselling services um, and I'm clinical lead for a programme which I've developed, which is around psychological screening and monitoring. Um, so this programme... Uh -huh. This program is literally about working with officers that are in high-risk roles, so um, anything to do with um, exposure to indecent images of children, um, having to deal with quite traumatic murder cases, anybody that's on the front line, anybody that's oh. in a covert role, um, just because it's a case of we've done the risk assessment and we know how horrible the job is, mm. but it's about providing the officers the well-being support whilst they're in that role and completing regular psychological assessments to make sure that the job role in itself isn't having a negative impact on their own well-being. Um, so I've just been in the process of developing that, which is touch wood going quite well. Um, and COVID hasn't stopped that actually, that's actually been able to maintain. So I'm just actually in the process of trying to build that up and trying to put together more of a psychology based team. So I'm currently the only psychologist within the occupational health department. So there's um, an opportunity for the team to expand and looking to hopefully roll out a similar program, not only to the high risk role officers, but also hopefully um, met wide. Uh, no, wow. You know, that's yeah, it's been a lot of work like, yeah, for a yeah. year and a half. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I just thinking about when you just said about your career, um, like your journey into the career. And it shows that actually those skills that you've learned how to juggle, how to manage expectations. Yeah. And now applying it here on a bigger scale, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, because especially yeah. with the Metropolitan Police, as you know, it's so 
uh, fast-paced, everything's reactive and everything has to happen now or even yesterday. So it's a kind of adapting to that. And I think obviously from um, the skills that I've learned doing the doctorate and things, the time management, the prioritization, all of the skills I've been able to apply, I'd like to say quite successfully in order to be able to meet the demands of the service. Um, similarly with COVID-19, I was approached by one of the um, nursing clinical leads asked to put together a well-being package for the officers that were involved in COVID-related activities. Wow. So, that, so that went live quite quickly as well. So just making sure that all of the officers involved um, have got well-being checks in place um, to make sure that nobody slips through the system and that we haven't forgotten about anybody and that everybody does have um, a well-being checkup. I mean, this is a you know fascinating conversation. I mean, no, Mo, no, first of all, you know, thank you for doing for doing important work, I should say. I, I mean, I love what I do. I mean, I've, I've worked in NHS services, so I've done community health. I've mm -hmm. done dementia services, which is quite specialised. And then I went on into crisis teams, so like the home treatment teams. So I think a combination of all of those have really helped to mould me into this particular role. The, the crisis role specifically, um, I think, is really well attached to this because it's just, like I said, um, led me to be quite more reactive and things have prepared me, I suppose, in some ways for this role. And, um, you know, um, so you you stay in basically very much practice role. Yes. Uh, so I role. have um, two clinical, no, three clinical days and maybe two or three um, strategic planning days and management, management, management experience and things around that as well. Okay. And, and how would the two roles, do they differ? What type of work is it like? Um, okay. So with the clinical roles, it would basically be having clinical appointments. So admin okay. team would book clinical appointments in my diary that would involve completing psychological assessments, um, completing post-deployment reviews, anything from completing trauma assessments, uh, counselling-based assessments. And whereas on the more practical side, it could be about developing strategies um, in terms of how to improve wellbeing services overall, um, doing evaluation of services that are currently in place, um, just doing sort of audits and things about what we can improve, where the areas that we're still perhaps falling behind on, looking at some of the comments and feedbacks, so just about service improvement overall, um, things like that. And I'm just thinking like, um, in terms of like, um, when you settled into the role, um, how was that journey into it? So like, because this was a very, very, it was, I presume this was like one of the, because uh, it has a lot of huge responsibility I presume yeah and how so was when, it exactly so when I first joined I was appointed to be um, deputy clinical lead for the counselling services um, and I think because of the nature of what we were involved in so very quickly I became involved in the Sri Lanka terrorist attacks in terms of providing the well-being support from that aspect um, and I think that incident enabled me to demonstrate a lot of the crisis related skills that I had. Um, and then there was a discussion within management team about actually perhaps we can utilize a psychologist in a more appropriate way. And perhaps we need to develop the response side of things. Um, so that's how I got sidetracked out and then almost um, developed into the clinical lead role position that I'm in now, and then build up the wellbeing support services around me from that particular example. Yeah, um, yeah, I was just having a look like um, going back to like um, the doctoral thesis. Yeah. Um, so your research, which um, area you said um, it was around 
female drinking behaviours? Yes, in the ethnic minority community, yes. Okay, and how, what did you find? Like, what we, what, what, what? What, so what, I, the reason I explored it was because it's a personal interest to me as well. So I'm from the same ethnic community that I researched yeah. and it was almost a case of going to different weddings and things over the years. Um, again, looking at the social behaviours around our own communities, things like that. And I noticed that there were certain behaviours that females were adopting, such as hiding the bottle within the bag, making sure nobody sees, you know, things like that, asking um male family members could you please get me a drink rather than approaching the bar themselves all of these different behaviors and I thought well what's going on here what can we explore so when I looked into the research we actually found that the research evidence showed that there were although there were quite a high number of females coming forward with drink related concerns they weren't actually accessing services um, so there were a lot of support groups that had been disguised as women's groups for general um, I don't know, it could be like Bollywood dancing or um, clothes making, things like that. But they were actually alcohol support groups. And that was because they were reluctant to come forward to GPs because it being a family GP um, and the shame and things that were attached to coming forward and saying, actually, I've got alcohol related concerns. Um, and what I explored was the cultural clash that um, a lot of this this particular group were experiencing because it's a case of the struggling of identities of I am a British born Sikh female well what does that mean I have a Sikh identity and I have a British identity but how does the two interesting yeah. meet up so it was a case of really exploring that um, and which I found actually quite interesting yeah I because I'm doing kind of similar work with the charity yes on around um, faith and BME, BAME communities around mental health okay so, not related to my PhD, <laughs> as my supervisor likes to point it out. Yes. But, he's very, but he's very supportive if he's listening. Yeah. Um, and I get encouraged by lots of people in the department around make sure the conversation is being had because we've got an issue around That's the health it. services are not reflective of the community yes. serves. Yes. It's not appropriate. Yeah. Um, therefore, you know, um, they're less likely to access. Mm-hmm. And so life expectancies yes. reduced, yes. inequality grows. Um, I'm just thinking more like um, how, how do you go about, I suppose, because there's two things, right? There's community work, community stuff you have to change and also institutions which provide yeah. services. How do you go about bridging the two? So I think from the community aspect, it would be a case of making them aware that the institutions do have a culturally based understanding in terms of what it means. Um, so there needs to be that level of understanding. If, if I do approach my GP, the GP will keep it confidential just because he knows my mum, my aunt, my sister, that he won't share or he or she, sorry, won't share these problems with them. What was that so culturally depend? What was that word you use? Culturally just oh, I can't remember now. Um, yeah, the services have a responsibility to be culturally aware. Yeah, so culturally aware of the um, of the discrepancies within the community that these do th- that these things do occur. So obviously, um, when I was completing the research, I found that Sikh men have the highest levels in terms of liver disease, and you know, mm-hmm. as a result of drinking behaviour. However, because of their other um, pre-existing conditions like um, heart disease or diabetes it's more commonly recorded as that rather than solely put down to alcohol consumption or alcohol related death 
Um, so there is those mixed messages and things coming through. So they need to have, um, so from an institution perspective, they need to be asking those questions um, in terms of do they have access to support? Are they drinking? How many units? Are they aware of what the safety units are? Um, at what point should they be concerned? Things like that. But then also raising awareness within communities that you can go forward and have these open discussions um, and actually putting some realistic statistics out there and letting people know that people are suffering as a result of this um, and that if they don't have somebody to talk to, this is inevitable in terms of what will happen in terms of the negative outcomes. Yeah, because, you know, we, we are getting them through the charity and it's very hard work um, because they're coming to us. Yeah, saying I need help and support, but where? What does that mean? Where do I go? And you know, we're an organisation that which is which is a charity. I'm like, look, the authorities have to help you. It's their responsibility. I can't help you. Yeah, and it's the reluctance to then go to the authorities because it's all of the shame and things that are attached yeah. to it. And so I think you know, trying to work locally with services, um, trying to get them to adapt, to change, and make sure their services are, are more you know um, accessible. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where a lot of health psychology stuff comes in, the psychoeducation yeah. element, yes. Yeah, and that's why I invested in this area, mm. um, you know, studying and just um, training in, because I thought, okay, well, what do I want to do? I want, I, it goes back to, to want to help people. Yes. Um, that's my main aim. Um, I suppose I want to help people where I am. And I just think that not dealing with the symptoms, but dealing with the root causes of stuff, is is more sustainable yes. and people have some hope and a good quality of life you know yes. yeah. i mean we are very fortunate that we do have the nhs that do provide amazing you know support mm. services for a wide range of different illnesses and conditions it's just a shame that perhaps a lot of people in the in the bain community don't have the confidence to perhaps access those services um, and there is a reluctance from that part as well yeah, and so what do you, I mean, where do, I mean, what, and what would you, where would you say, like, people listening in, if they wanted to make a similar career choice like us in this direction, yeah. um, how could they play a part? Where do you, where, or would you think the future lies then in, in certain career aspects? I mean, I would see technology, for example. Yeah, of course, like the, the use of smartphones, apps, all of these things are a great way of people connecting. The use of social media, you know, there are so many different platforms of support out there at the moment. I think that is a key thing and going forward um, in terms of the way technology and things is moving, that will be key. But also just going out and finding out what's happening within the community. Yeah, I, think, yeah. um, I think it's quite easy to take more of a detached approach and say, mm. let me look at everything and see what's going on. But there's nothing to stop you from going to, I don't know, your local temple, community centre, just talking to other people around you and actually yeah. finding out what's going on. Um, and where are people going? I know, I, I, that, and I completely agree with you. When I went, started speaking to people about stuff, sometimes, you know, it's just about hanging, hanging about in the chip shops and the kebab shops and just seeing what the conversation's about and interacting with them. That's right, yeah. And, then and it's just about spreading awareness. But even in terms of where those um, communities do gather and things, making sure those messages of support and... Um, awareness about the issues is also widespread as well so that they know that if anybody was to approach them they can also sign posts to those services and say don't worry it's not a bad thing because there is help and support rather than having that fear of judgment and I think that's a big thing within Bain communities. Yeah I mean um, I suppose like and that's the reason why I think they come and talk to me because I've got a 
a very hopefully uh, non-stigmatizing attitude about stuff. They're quite approachable, very easy to talk to and yeah. things as well. So they think actually, let me ask. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's just being there in physical presence. And I think as psychologists, right, because we're trained in that way to be ethical, to be confidential, to be. Yeah, it provides them with a safety blanket. So when I was conducting my research through the interviews that I was um, completing, yeah. even though I had no relationship with these people, but because I was of the same ethnic um, group that they were, they just found it easier to talk to me about things because this was their one opportunity to ask a psychologist about some of these things or share some of what they were experiencing in terms of behaviours or symptoms and just try and find out, well, actually, do I need further help and support? And, um, you know, before we go, um, you know, I think it's been really, really useful. Um, there's this last piece I wanted to ask was around, you know, because of the current climate. Yes. Um, it's around um, BAME and COVID. You know, we're going to see lots of different, um, let's just say, unfortunate yes. deaths. You know, it looks like it's going to happen. Yeah. Because um, the BAME community has been identified as having um, more health inequalities which put them into the high-risk category isn't it yeah and i don't think i just think as in, in the future right i mean what do you think we can do like what what where would you say that people like myself and you know people who are psychologists or mm -hmm. working in this area what, what do you think we can do to prevent it in the future um so in terms of prevention i think it has to be a team effort but it has to come from the individual themselves so yeah. I think as long as we can get the message across and there is an element of information provided within communities. So again, through psychoeducation, whether that's done through GP. So I'm, uh, I'm sure you're aware that when somebody is on the borderline for diabetes, everybody's sent to um, a diabetes yeah, um, nice. course for yeah. what, five to six weeks. And every single week it focuses on a specific topic. So the onus is put on the individual. You actually do have some control over this just because you fall in a particular ethnic minority group doesn't mean that you automatically associate this illness with you. So providing more schemes like that, whether it's through charitable organisations or through the NHS, providing that can be really helpful. Um, having people that have actually had a diagnosis from this, uh, from a particular illness that have come from an ethnic minority group and how they've overcome it and some of the steps and things that they've done to take control, because I think that is a key thing rather than just having this acceptance of this is what my fate is it's a case of them being more aware of what the causes you know symptoms how can i change my behaviors things like that and moving forward prevent some of those health inequalities becoming wider that's really really useful i think um you know a lot of you listening will find that helpful um now before you finally finally go um um i normally i, I normally ask this to every guest um so um it's not to put you on the spot or anything okay <laughs> so you can take a you can take a you can take a brief pause before you answer the question but yeah um so how i like to finish the the podcast um is basically uh, you have the final word mm -hmm. um so if you i normally ask to share uh, if you would like to share an inspirational line sentence or a quote and then i press um once you've said that i press um stop recording so it can be anything that you want to share in this climate climate, whatever you want to do. That everything is temporary and no matter how bad things get, those feelings too shall pass. Available on all podcast platforms.
This is the Psychology Cast, the podcast that interviews unique individuals on why they do what they do.